Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Julie, who is the first scientist? Oh, who indeed. In fact, when did the term scientist even get into our lexicon? That's what we're going to talk about here. This idea that science and philosophy, they have been strange bedfellows for a very long time. They've had the symbiotic relationship, and at one point they were pretty much interwoven. And so we're going to tease this idea of science and scientists out today. Yeah, because obviously we've always been curious as a species. We've always gazed up into the sky and wondered what's going on there, or Mm -hmm. gazed out into the dark beyond the campfire and wondered exactly how that worked, Uh, looked at our own bodies and tried to figure out what was wrong with us and how we might uh, fix the problems. But... There is a certain point in the past, one can argue, at which we can really say that the, the, the scientist emerges from culture. And, it, and it's not just a matter of being curious, and it's not just a matter of even engaging in investigations, in experiments, in an attempt to understand these things, mm-hmm. but there's actually a split when people start becoming scientists and wielding science in an attempt to understand the world around us and better the world around us. Right. There's a a formalizing of the physical sciences that is really the term actually scientist is only 180 years old. And um, we're going to explore this concept through a TED talk by Professor Laura Snyder. She's a Fulbright scholar and professor of philosophy at St. John's University. And she gives us rousing TED talk. A rousing TED talk? Imagine. (laughs) About the origins of this term and tying it back to this idea, this central idea that science is not just for scientists. So she gives a very nice wide-angle view of how the, the physical sciences that we think about today, or scientists, really owe a lot of, of its success um, to a night back in 1833. Yes. But we'll, we'll discuss that later. First, I think we should talk about this uh, idea of a philosophical breakfast club that Snyder terms... Um, this this meeting of the minds where the seeds of the modern concepts of science were first cultivated. Yeah, early 19th century, and uh, you had four high school students who were for- forced to uh, stay in, in Saturday school all day by the... Uh, That's not... Oh, wrong breakfast no. club. Okay, right, sorry. right, no. No, uh, this breakfast club consisted of uh, four individuals, though, and uh, they were... Charles Babbage of uh, the Babbage engine, you know, first mechanical calculator and uh, prototype for the modern computer. John Herschel, astronomer, also co-invented photography, you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard Jones, the economist, and William Huell, uh, noted scientist of the time. That's right. And I uh, just wanted to add, too, that Babbage, of course, he, you know, the first prototype of the modern computer, he was also aided by the first computer programmer, Ada Lovelace. And this may have actually, um, her inclusion in this may have actually colored the more participation of women later on in these societies, um, or science societies, I should say. But we'll get to that. Uh, first, I wanted to say that these guys who would meet, for breakfast and mm-hmm. discuss science and what was wrong with it and what was right about it and and what they needed to do, they really contributed a lot to sort of the foundation of what we think of as modern science today. Yeah, they were really laying it out, picking it apart. Uh, I'm assuming they were having some caffeinated beverages in there to, to stoke things and get things going because they they were... Uh, 
very energetic group of people, not only in their their outside lives, but also just in this uh, this so called Breakfast Club as they're they're laying the groundwork for really what we think of as science today. When people say, oh, I love science, or they're going to a Tumblr page about about uh, effing loving science, it's kind of born out of their discussions about what, what works, what has worked in other areas, and what is, is going to work best moving forward. Yeah, and we're talking about 1812, 1813, um, and they are discussing some principles here like the scientific method, although mm-hmm. at this point it was not called the scientific method um, exclusively. It was more of the inductive method. And there was also something called the deductive method at the time. So scientific method. Now, you know, as early as 200 years before, you had people like Francis Bacon uh, that were proposing an inductive scientific method. You start with observations and experiments, and you move on to generalizations about nature, formalization of natural laws. Yeah, and you now, can always revise that or reject the results, right? Yeah, yeah. But then uh, 1809, you have this economist by the name of David Ricardo, and he really starts causing some trouble because he's saying, oh, well, actually, we should use a deductive method in, in economics, mm-hmm. in, the, in the economic sciences. And then... And uh, various people at Oxford are agreeing with him, and they're saying, yeah, actually, you know, uh, maybe the deductive method is best. We should just spread it to all the science sciences. And uh, our friends on the Breakfast Club here, they say, absolutely not. Right, because what we're talking about with the deductive method is taking a top-down approach where a general, general premise is proven out, as opposed to just sort of taking these observations and this data, mm-hmm. as you would with the inductive method, and trying to figure out what shakes out of that, and continuing to go back to those results, revising and rejecting which is really the seeds of what we know of as the scientific method. So, yeah, those guys, if they hadn't debated this, if they hadn't written very persuasive arguments, persuasive papers about this, they may not have influenced as many scientists as they did. I mean, Charles Darwin is among the group of scientists at that time, or what's known as natural world hobbyists, because they didn't have the term yet, who read one of the papers and said, ah, yeah, I'm on the right path here, and this is how I should conduct my research. And, of course, that's key. They were not only simply um, hanging around having breakfast and discussing these things. Then they moved on these ideas. They they published their thoughts. They spread the mm-hmm. word, and they were very vocal uh, to their peers. Now, another area where they had a huge influence was uh, the kind of establishment of open source science. Uh, and this is the idea that, that science isn't merely for the benefit of a king or a queen. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's something that can actually benefit everyone, benefit yeah, society as a whole. Right, or even one's own personal gain. In, in right. other words, if you had enough money, if you had enough nobility, then you could, as a hobby, you know, study something and find these results out for yourself. And, and at maybe a nobleman's cocktail party, whatever that was back yeah. in the day, you could regal everybody with all this information. But yeah, they, they took information and they felt like, it was important to spread it to the wider community. And a good example of this that Snyder brings up is that back in the day, ship captains needed to know information about tides in order to safely dock at ports. And harbor masters would gather this knowledge and sell it to the ship captains, which seems kind of crazy to us now because this is something that's so like, yes, of course we know about all about the tides. Mm-hmm. But Hewell's worldwide study of the tides resulted in public tide tables and tidal maps and then that freely provided the harbor master's knowledge to all ship captains. So it's sort of like, I think about it now, like a, you, you go online, uh, you get the weather report for the next 10 days. Right. You don't have to pay for that. Uh, well, I guess in theory you don't have to. Some people would argue that via your Internet connection you're paying for it. But this is information that's really open to all. Right. But can you imagine having to go to a specific person and saying, I need the weather for the next 10 days. I'm planning this huge event. And it's this big secret that they keep from you. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. It, we would live in a totally different world. Mm-hmm. Another thing that they did is they began to lobby the government for money for right. research. Now, before this, you had to really fund everything yourself, including the equipment that you would use. Yeah, and the big example here would, is Babbage's Babbage engine. They said they went to the to the British government. They said, "Hey, this machine for number crunching would be of huge benefit to not not only the government but also to, to the people in general. Like this, this is a very useful device. You should give us some money to make this a reality." Yeah, and then another thing that they did is that they helped to create various scientific societies. So before uh, you know the establishment of some of these societies, you had something like the Royal Society of London, which was essentially a hangout for literary men mm-hmm. and nobility. Um, then they created the British Association, and that encouraged active researchers who actually published their works. Yeah, not just uh, just socialites essentially hanging out and uh, yeah. you know a, an, an old boy society here, but people who are actually contributing to scientific understanding. And they brought back a Q&A session after papers were read. So, in other words, you, there's yeah, which a debate. Had, which, which I love. They had gotten rid of that earlier because it was just ungentlemanly. Why would right. you, why would you, uh, <laughs> you, you muddy the, the situation by uh, allowing criticism? Just, just let the, the man up there, let him uh, share his findings, and that'll be the end of it. No, that's not how science works. So they brought the Q&A sessions back. Yep, and uh, women were given a foot in the door, and you have to wonder, again, is this because of Ada Lovelace and some of her work that she did with Babbage, this encouraging of everyone to participate in science. Mm -hmm. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll discuss a little more of this uh, this birth of the scientist, if you will. All right, we are back. The night is June 24th, 1833. There is a great gathering of philosophical and scientific minds at the British Association for the Advancement of Science. One man dares to stand up and wonder why scientists keep calling themselves natural philosophers. Yeah, and that man is Coleridge. Yes, yeah, yeah. The poet. The poet, Samuel uh, Taylor Coleridge. And he's, uh, he's basically saying, look... You're not philosophers. Like what I love about this, he's basically <laughs> kind of like trying to break up with the scientists. It's kind of a reverse of what you see, or what what uh, what we saw uh, at World Science Festival this year, mm-hmm. when you had uh, sort of the scientists sort of picking on the philosophers and, and being the ones yeah. up in arms against the philosophers. Here we see uh, a a a self-professed philosopher saying, "No, this is a uh, philosophy is about armchair stargazing. Basically, mm-hmm. you know, we're not out there digging around in the dirt. This is a uh, this is the uh, the occupation of a learned man who is just uh, setting among his books and uh, and, and contemplating uh, just how uh, reality works. And uh, you're sullying it by calling yourself natural philosophers. Yeah. And now the room does not take that kindly. I mean, essentially <laughs> they start booing. Uh, but Hewell, remember, he's been, you know, trying to organize this idea of science and scientists for nearly 20 years at this point. He stands up. He seizes this opportunity. And he says, you know, I, I pretty much agree here. And if you'll, you'll hear me out, I think that he has something to say. He said, if philosophers is taken to be too wide and lofty a term, then by analogy with artists, we may form scientists. And boom, the term is born. But it's not just the term. It's the idea now is taking shape and form of that this person who is no longer just called a natural world hobbyist, <laughs> like Darwin would have yeah. been considered. Natural world hobbyist is really, like today you say, I want to be a scientist when you grow up. That's great. But if you were to say, I want to be a natural world hobbyist when I grow up, it, 
it would be a bit of a, a of an upset, I think. Parents might weep. Yeah. Yeah, get a real job. Why don't you be a scientist <laughs> right, instead? Right. Yeah, so, so this is an, an interesting dividing point in just uh, the words we use to describe uh, what we do and uh, and, how, and how those words and the definitions of that occupation uh, end up defining the movement. And, uh, and you know, we, we, we see it continue to this day with, with science sort of built up like this, uh, like this slime mold that uh, moves through the halls of reality that's that uh, uh that based on scientific method mm-hmm. and uh and, the, and a rigorous experimentation and examination of the natural world attempts to understand exactly what environment we're dealing with and sharing this information and sharing this information yeah with with the greater public now uh what happened is that the british association for the advancement of science decided that they would begin to give grant money so it's not just government institutions doling out grant money now we actually have you know this this independent institution um, saying that basically on the advice of this philosophical breakfast club, these mm-hmm. four guys from Cambridge, that um, they're going to start to give grants for research in astronomy, the tides, fossil fish, and according to Snyder, shipbuilding in a lot of different areas that really began to expand everyone's knowledge about the physical world. Yeah, once again, not just the occupation of uh, independently wealthy, learned men, and not simply for the benefit of kings and queens. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine a world without this formalized idea of science, this, these formalized structures and support that are underpinning all of this? I mean, our inventions, you would have to wonder how many of those would have been created and supported, um, what sort of data would be shared without this formalized system. And I feel like we get a glimpse of it, uh, perhaps, sometimes when you look at the the outliers, you see uh, uh, you glimpse into the world of pseudoscience mm-hmm. and junk science, and, and you get a, perhaps a glimpse of a, a little more of what the world would be like uh, if, if we didn't have this tent uh, of science erected. Well, I mean, you could say, you could make the, the point here that our life expectancy is yeah. actually directly related to this idea of science coming on board and helping to separate pseudoscience from science. Um, so our quality of life as well. So it's, it's very important, this moment back in 1833, which really helped the trajectory of science that we see today because we have seen incredible things. I mean, geez, just in the last 30 years, mm-hmm. um, you know, this 180 years since this term has been created has seen uh, incredible things as well. Now, Laura Snyder in her talk also mentions that this, uh, this also inevitably led to a cultural divide. Yeah, she says that um, Babbage, Herschel, Jones, and Hewell, this philosophical breakfast club, they did not foresee this consequence of this revolution. Um, and they would have been really dismayed by this disjunction today that we have between science and the rest of culture. And she goes on to say that it's really shocking to realize that only 28% of American adults have a basic level of science literacy. And she's saying we're talking about questions like, did humans and dinosaurs inhabit the Earth at the same time? No. Okay. I just, I just want to make sure we're clear on that. And what proportion of the Earth is covered in water? 70%. Uh, no, I thought it was like 99.9. Is it 99.9? I'm kidding. Oh. So if you're counting swimming pools, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. But she, she was saying, you know, that they did not see that this would happen, that, that, that scientists would become slowly walled off from each other, she says. And that's where she comes back to this idea that science isn't just for scientists. It is for everyone. And that's the lesson that we need to take from this historical perspective. Yeah, that science should not be this, this fortress 
and and then everyone else is living outside the walls of it. Uh, because then you would depend more and more on individuals who can uh, communicate between the people inside the wall and the people on the outside. And you really need more movement. You, you need those open doors of communication. Uh, I mean, that, that's why uh, you you see an you know, increased uh, emphasis on storytelling and science, being be able to tell yeah. the story of the science, be, be able to communicate to normal uh, individuals outside of the sciences what you're doing, why it's important, and how it benefits everybody. And we've talked about this idea that we're all natural scientists anyway, yeah. that we are all prepackaged and ready to go with science, that you see three- and four-year-olds who are like Euclidean geometry masters. They're using the dimensions of a wall to navigate space and all sorts of different clues from the physical world and that's you know we have accounting sense even when we're we're uh, you know babies we can tell if if there's uh, more in one group or less in another so again all of this is inherent to us, and it should not be looked at as being separate from us. Yeah, ex- exactly. Uh, you know, again, there were there. We've always had people who are essentially scientists way back to the ancient ancient days of, of humanity. Uh, it's just uh, only in, in relatively recent times that we've had a structured system uh, of investigation and experimentation uh, that we actually call science. So, should we come up with a new term to just sort of merge the human and the scientist? <laughs> I don't know. What would that, that be? Hewitist. Hewitist? Okay. Hewitist sounds good. It sounds a little bit like uh, hubris, uh, but uh, but uh, but I'll accept it. Science-um. Science-um? Like mm. science-um in the face? No. Science and human. All right. I bet you guys out there have better recommendations for a word that could encompass all of these ideas. Yeah, and you can let us know by finding us in all the usual places. We're at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where we throw all of our material up, including old episodes of the podcast, uh, all the ones that you cannot find on iTunes any longer. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, all those places. Just look for Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and you will find us also... Good old-fashioned email. Uh, that's right. You can send us a line at blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 